0: chapter twelve of a silent witness by r austin freeman this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by anna simon chapter twelve miss vine as i stepped out onto the platform with a valedictory bow to my reverend fellow-passenger my irresolution came to an end and my duty became clear i must in common decency report myself at once to thorndyke seeing that he had been at so much trouble on my account card which he had given me i had unfortunately or perhaps fortunately as it turned out left on the mantelpiece at my lodgings but i remembered that the address was king's bench walk and assumed that i should have no difficulty in finding the house nor had i for as i entered the temple by the tudor street gate having overshot my mark on the embankment i was almost immediately confronted by a fine brick doorway surmounted by a handsome pediment and bearing legibly painted on its jamb, First pair, Dr. Thorndyke. I ascended the first pair of stairs, which brought me to an open oak door, massive and iron-bound, and a closed inner door, on the brass knocker of which I executed a flourish that would have done credit to a Belgravian footman, whereupon the door opened, and a small man of sedate and clerical aspect regarded me with an air of mild inquiry. Is Dr. Thorndyke at home? "'I asked. "'No, sir, he is at the hospital. "'Dr. Jervis is watching a case in the probate court. "'Perhaps you would like to leave a message or write a note. "'A message in writing would be preferable.' "'I don't know that it is necessary,' said I. "'My name is Jardine, and if you tell him that I called, "'that will probably be enough.' the little man gave me a quick bird-like glance of obviously heightened interest if you are dr humphrey jardine said he i think a few explanatory words would be acceptable the doctor has been extremely uneasy about you a short note and an appointment either here or at the hospital would be desirable with this he stepped back holding the door invitingly open and i entered wondering who the deuce this prim little cathedral dean might be, with his persuasive manners and his quaintly precise forms of speech. He placed a chair for me at the table and, having furnished me with writing materials, stood a little way off, unobtrusively examining me as I wrote. I had finished the short letter, closed it up and addressed it, and was rising to go, when, almost automatically, I took out my watch and glanced at it. Of course it had stopped. "'Can you tell me the time?' I asked. My acquaintance drew out his own watch, and replied deliberately, Seventeen minutes and forty seconds past one.' He paused for a moment, and then added, "'I hope, sir, you have not got any water in your watch.' "'I'm afraid I have,' I replied, rather taken aback by the rapidity of his diagnosis. "'But I'll just wind it up to make sure.' "'Oh, don't do that, sir,' he exclaimed. Allow me to examine it before you disturb the movement.' He whipped out of his pocket a watchmaker's eyeglass, which miraculously glued itself to his eye, and, having taken a brief glance at the opened watch, produced a minute pocket screwdriver and a sheet of paper, and, in the twinkling of an eye, as it seemed to me, the paper was covered with the dismembered structures which had in their totality formed my timepiece. "'It's quite a small matter, sir,' "'was his report as he rose from his inspection and pocketed his eyeglass. "'Just a speck or two of rust. "'If you will take my watch for the present, "'I will have your own in going order by the next time you call.' "'It seemed an odd transaction, "'but the little man's manner, though quiet, "'was so decisive that I took his proffered watch "'and, affixing it to my chain, thanked him for his kindness and departed.' wondering if it was possible that this prim, clerical little person could possibly be the tame mechanic of whom Thorndyke had spoken. Travelling in London was comparatively slow in those days, which, perhaps, was none the worse for a near and pleasant suburb like Hampstead. It had turned half past two when I let myself into my lodgings with a rather rusty key, and almost literally fell into the arms of Mrs. Blunt. I feared for a moment that she was going to kiss me, that was a false alarm. What she actually did was to seize both my hands and burst into tears with such violence as to cover me with confusion, and cause the servant-maid to rise like a domestic and highly inquisitive apparition from the kitchen stairs. I pacified Mrs. Blunt as well as I could, and shook hands heartily with the maid, who thereupon retired, much gratified, to the underworld, whence presently issued an odour suggestive of sacrificial rites, not entirely unconnected with fried onions, and accompanied by an agreeable hissing sound. "'But wherever have you been all this time?' Mrs. Blunt asked as she preceded me up the stairs, wiping her eyes. "'And why didn't you send us a line just to say that you were all right?' To this question I made a somewhat guarded answer in so far as the cause of my immersion in the river was concerned. Otherwise I gave her a fairly correct account of my adventures. "'Well, well,' was her comment, I suppose it was all for the best, but I do think those sailors might have put you on shore somewhere. Dear me, what a time it has been! I couldn't sleep at night for thinking of you, and what Susan and I have eaten between us wouldn't have kept a sparrow alive. And Dr. Thorndyke too. I'm sure he was very anxious and worried about you, though he's such a quiet, self-contained man that you can't tell what he's thinking of. And, Lord, what a lot of questions he do ask, to be sure! "'By the way, how did he come to know that I was missing?' "'Why, I told him, of course, when you didn't come home that night, which Susan and me set up for you until three in the morning, I thought there must be something wrong, you being so regular in your habits. So next day, the very first thing, I took his card from your mantelpiece, and down I went to his office and told him what had happened. He came up here that evening to see if you'd come home, and he's been here every day since to inquire.' has he really yes in a handsome cab every single day and so is the young lady the young lady i exclaimed what young lady mrs blunt regarded me with something as nearly approaching a wink as can be imagined in association with an elderly female of sedate aspect now she protested slyly as if you didn't know what young lady indeed Why." Miss Vine, to be sure, and a very sweet young lady she is, and talked to me just as simple and friendly as if she'd been an ordinary young woman. How do you know that she isn't an ordinary young woman? I asked. Mrs. Blunt was shocked. Do you suppose, Mr. Jardine, sir, she demanded severely, that I, who've been a head parlour-maid in a county family where my poor husband was coachman, don't know a real gentlewoman when I meet one? surprise me sir i apologized hastily and suggested that as so many kind inquiries had been made the least i could do was to call and return thanks without delay certainly sir mrs blunt agreed but not until you have had your lunch it's a small porterhouse steak she added alluringly being evidently suspicious of my intentions the announcement, seconded by an appetizing whiff from below, reminded me that I was prodigiously sharp set, having tasted no food since I had come ashore at Folkestone, and put the grosser physiological needs of the body, for the moment, in the ascendant. But even as I was devouring the steak with voracious gusto, my mind occupied itself with plans for a strategic descent on the abode of the fair Sylvia, and with speculations on the reception I should get and the noise of water running into the bath formed a pleasing accompaniment to the final mouthfuls. When I bathed, shaved, and attired myself in carefully selected garments, I set forth, as smart and spruce as the frog that would a wooing go, saving the opera head, which would have been inappropriate to the occasion. The distance to Sylvia's house was not great, and a pair of long and rapidly moving legs consumed it to such purpose that it was still quite reasonable calling-time when I opened the gate of the Hawthorns and gave a modest pull at the bell. My summons was answered by a rather foolish-looking maid, by whom I was informed that Miss Vine was at home, and when I had given her my name, which she seemed disposed to confuse with that of a well-known edible fish, she ushered me down a passage to a room at the back of the house, and, opening the door, announced me. Correctly, I was glad to note— whereupon i assumed an ingratiating smile and entered now there is nothing more disconcerting than a total failure of agreement between anticipation and realization unconsciously i pictured to myself the easy-mannered genial sylvia seated perhaps at an easel or table working on one of her pictures and had prepared myself for a reception quite simple friendly and unembarrassing confidently and entirely at my ease i walked in through the doorway and there the pleasant vision faded leaving me with the smile frozen on my face staring in consternation at one of the most appalling old women that it has ever been my misfortune to encounter i am in general rather afraid of old women they are to my mind a rather alarming class of creature but the present specimen exceeded my wildest nightmares it was not merely that she was seated unnaturally in the exact centre of the room, and that she sat with the unhuman immobility, moving no muscle and uttering no sound as I entered, though that was somewhat embarrassing. It was her strange, forbidding appearance that utterly shattered my self-possession, and seemed to disturb the very marrow in my bones. She was a most remarkable-looking person, An immense Roman nose, a mop of frizzy gray fringe, and a lofty surmounting cap or headdress of some kind, suggested that monstrous and unreal bird, the helmeted hornbill, and the bird-like character was heightened by her eyes, which were small and glittering, and set in the midst of a multitude of radiating wrinkles. To this most alarming person I made a low bow, and dropped my stick of which the maid had neglected to relieve me, and for which I had found no appointed receptacle. As I stooped hastily to pick it up, my hat slipped from my grasp, and, urged by the devil that possessed disengaged hats, instantly rolled under a deep ottoman, once I had to hook it out with the handle of my stick. I rose, perspiring with embarrassment, to confront that immovable figure, and found the glittering eyes fixed on me attentively, but without any sign of expression of human emotion haltingly i essayed to stammer out an explanation of my visit er uh, i have um called here i paused to collect my ideas and the old lady watched me stonily without offering any remark indeed no comment was needed on a statement so self-evidently true after a brief and hideous silence i began again I um, thought it desirable, um, and in fact necessary, and um, proper to call, um, and here my ideas again petered out, and a horrid silence ensued, amidst which I heard a still, emotionless voice murmur, "'Yes, and you have accordingly called.' "'Exactly,' I agreed." Grasping eagerly at the slenderest straw of suggestion, I have called to, um, well, the fact is that my, um, very remarkable absence seemed to call for some explanation, especially as certain inquiries, um, at this point I stopped suddenly with a horrible doubt as to whether I was not saying more than I was discreet, and the misgiving was intensified by that chilly, calm voice framing the question. Enquiries made personally. Now, this was a facer. I seemed to have put my foot in it at the first lead off. Supposing Sylvia had said nothing about her little visits to Mrs. Blunt, it would never do to give her away to this inquisitorial old waxwork. I endeavored to temporize. Well, I stammered, n- not exactly made personally to me. "'By letter, perhaps?' the voice suggested in the same even, impassive tone. Um, n- "'No, n- not by letter.' There was a short, embarrassing pause, and then the old lady, as if summing up the case, said frigidly, "'Not exactly personally, and not by letter.' I was so utterly confounded by her judicial manner her immovable, expressionless face, and the hypnotic quality of those glittering eyes, that for the moment I could think of nothing to say. "'Don't let me interrupt you,' said she, after some seconds of agonized silence on my part, whereupon I pulled myself together and made a fresh start. "'I should, perhaps, have explained that I have been unavoidably absent from home for some time, and, as I was unable to communicate with my friends, I have, I am afraid, caused them some anxiety. It was this that seemed to make it necessary for me to call and give an account of myself." She pondered a while on this statement, if a graven image can be said to ponder, and at length inquired, "'You spoke of your friends. Are any of them known to me?' "'Well,' I replied, I was referring more particularly to your daughter. She continued to regard me fixedly, and after a brief interval rejoined, you are referring to my daughter, but I do not recall the existence of any such person. I think you must be mistaken. It seemed extremely probable, and I hastened to amend the description. I beg your pardon, I should have said Miss Vine, but perhaps she is not at home you are evidently mistaken was the paralyzing reply i am miss vine and i need not add that i am at home but i demanded despairingly is there not another miss vine there is not she answered but it is possible that you are referring to miss sylvia vine. Is that so? I replied sulkily that it was, and being somewhat nettled by this unnecessary and rather offensive hair-splitting, offered no further remark. How the conversation would have proceeded after this I cannot even surmise, but it did not proceed at all, for the embarrassing silence was brought to an end by a very agreeable interruption. The door opened softly, and for one moment Sylvia herself stood framed in the portal, then, with a little cry, she ran towards me with her hands held out impulsively and the prettiest smile of welcome. So it is really you, she exclaimed. That silly little goose of a mate has only just told me you were here. I am glad to see you. When did you graciously please to descend from the clouds? I arrived home this afternoon, and as soon as I had changed and had lunch I came here to report myself. How nice of you, said Sylvia. I suppose you guessed how anxious we should be. I didn't presume to think that you would actually be anxious about me,' I replied, with a furtive eye on the waxwork, though I knew that you had been kind enough to express an interest in my fate. "'What a cold-bloodedly polite way to put it!' laughed Sylvia. "'Express an interest, indeed. We were most dreadfully worried about you.' to a somewhat friendless man like myself this sympathetic warmth was very delightful and my pleasure was not appreciably damped when a chill emotionless voice affirmed the use of the first person singular would i think be preferable sylvia turned on her aunt with mock ferocity well really she exclaimed you're a dreadful impostor mopsy dear just listen to her dr jardine and if you had only seen what a Twitter she was in as the time went on and no news came. I gasped, and the hair seemed to stir on my scalp. Mopsy, the name was obviously not applied to me. But could it be? Was it possible that such a name could be associated with that terrific old lady? It was inconceivable. It was positively profane. It was almost as if one should presume to address the deity as old chap i could hardly believe my ears i glanced at her nervously and caught her glittering eye but the grotesque face was as immovable as everlasting granite though indeed by some ventriloquial magic the word rubbish managed to disengage itself from her person it isn't rubbish retorted sylvia it's the plain truth we were both worried to death about you and no wonder dr thorndyke was very quiet and matter of fact but there's no disguising his fear that something dreadful had happened to you. And then there was the advertisement in the papers. Did you see that? Oh, it's nothing to grin about. You've given us all a nice fright, and me especially, because, of course, I naturally thought of that ruffian from whom you'd rescued me in the lane. But he never saw me. You don't know. He may have done. At any rate, ye owe us an explanation. So when the tea comes in, you shall give us the true story of your adventures.' I hope let dr thorndyke know about your resurrection i reassured her on this point and as the goose of a mate now brought in the tea i proceeded to pitch my yarn as the skipper had expressed it without those reservations that i had considered necessary in the case of mrs Blunt. the old lady having been unmasked by sylvia developed a slight tendency to thaw she even condescended in a rigid and effigian fashion to consume bread and butter Proceeding that seemed to me weirdly incongruous as though one should steal into the british museum in off hours and find the seated statue of amenhotep III in the act of refreshing itself with a sandwich and a glass of beer but i was less terrified of her now since i had gathered that a core of warm humanity was somewhere concealed within that grim exterior and even though her little sparkling eyes were fixed on me immovably i told my story to the end without flinching Sylvia listened to my narration with a rapt attention that greatly flattered my vanity and made me feel like a very Othello, and when I had finished, she regarded me for a while silently and with an air of speculation. "'It's a queer affair,' she said at length, "'and there is a smack of mystery and romance about it that is rather refreshing in these commonplace days. But I don't like it. Adventure is all very well, but there seems to have been a deliberate attempt to make away with you.' unless you think it may have been a piece of silly horseplay that went farther than it was meant to.' "'That is quite possible,' I replied untruthfully, for I didn't think anything of the sort, and only made this evasive answer to avoid raising other and more delicate issues. "'I hope that is the explanation,' said Sylvia, though it sounds rather a lame one. "'You would know if you had an enemy who might wish to get rid of you. I suppose you don't know of any such person?' It was a rather awkward question. I didn't want to tell an untruth, but, on the other hand, I knew that Thorndyke would not wish to have my affairs discussed while his investigations were in progress, so I hedged once more, replying, quite truthfully, that I was not acquainted with anyone who bore me the slightest ill will. My adventures done with, the talk drifted into other channels, and presently came round to the little crucifix that had been the occasion of Sylvia's disagreeable experience in the lane in spite of my confusion i had noticed on first entering the room that the old lady was wearing suspended from her neck a small enameled crucifix and had instantly identified it and wondered not a little that she should be thus disporting herself in borrowed ornaments but when sylvia had arrived behold the original crucifix was hanging on its chain from her neck from time to time during my recital my eyes had wandered from one to the other seeking some difference or variation but finding none and at length my inquisitive glances caught the younger lady's attention. "'I can see, Dr. Jardine,' said she, "'that you're eaten up with curiosity about the crucifix that my aunt is wearing. Now confess, aren't you?' "'I am,' I admitted. "'When I first came in, I naturally thought it was yours. "'Is it a copy?' "'Certainly not,' said Miss Vine, the elder. "'They are duplicates.' Sylvia laughed, "'You'd better not talk about copies,' said she. "'My aunt has only acquired her treasure lately, and she is as proud of it as a peacock. Aren't you, dear?' "'The sensations of a peacock,' replied Miss Vine, "'are unknown to me. I am very gratified at possessing the ornament.' "'Gratified, indeed,' said Sylvia. "'I consider such vanity most unsuitable to a person of your age. But they are very charming, there is quite a little story attached to them.' "'My father and a cousin of his.' "'By marriage?' interposed Miss Vine. "'You needn't insist on that,' said Sylvia, "'as if poor old Vitalia were a person to be ashamed of. "'Well, my father and his cousin were at a Jesuit school in Belgium. "'At Leuven, in fact. "'And among the teachers in the school was an Italian Jesuit named Giglioli. "'Now the respected giglioli "'Oli,' interposed Miss Vine in a severe voice. "'Oli,' continued Sylvia, "'had formerly been a goldsmith, and the father superior, with that keen eye to the main chance which you may have noticed among professed religious, furnished him with a little workshop, and employed him in making monstrances, thuribles, and church plate in general. It was he who made these two crucifixes, and, with the father superior's consent, he gave one to my father, and the other to the cousin, as parting gifts on their leaving school.' As the boys were inseparable friends, the two crucifixes were made absolute duplicates of one another, with the single exception that each had the owner's name engraved on the back. When my poor father died, his crucifix became mine, and a short time ago his cousin, who is now getting an old man, took a fancy that he would like the two crucifixes to be together once more, and gave his to my aunt. So here they are, after all these years, under one roof again as she finished speaking she detached the crucifix from her neck and having given it to me to examine proceeded to remove its fellow from the neck of the elder lady who not only submitted quite passively but seemed to be unaware of the transaction and handed that to me also i laid them side by side in my palm and compared them but could not detect the slightest difference between them they were complete duplicates each was a latin cross with trifoiled extremities Wrought from a single piece of gold and enriched with champlevé enamel, the body of the cross was filled with a ground of deep translucent blue, from which the figure stood out in rather low relief. And the space between each of the trefoils was occupied by a single Greek letter, iota and chi at the top and bottom respectively, and at the ends of the horizontal arm, alpha and omega. On turning them over, I saw that the back of each bore an engraved inscription, carried across the horizontal arm, that on Sylvia's reading, A. M. Robertus, D. G., while that on the other read, A. M. Vitalis, D. G. "'They are very charming little things,' I said, as I returned them to Sylvia. "'And it was a pretty idea, of the old Jesuit, to make them both alike for the two friends. I suppose he didn't make any more of them for his other pupils.' "'What makes you ask that?' demanded Sylvia. "'I am thinking of that man in the lane. He must have had some reason for claiming the crucifix as his, one would think, and as these are quite unlike any ordinary commercial jewellery, the suggestion is that the worthy Giglioli was tempted to repeat his successes. What do you think?' "'I think,' said Miss Vine, "'that the suggestion is inadmissible.' father giglioli was an artist and an artist does not repeat himself i am inclined to agree with my aunt said sylvia an artist does not care to repeat a design excepting for a definite purpose as in the case of these duplicates especially when the thing designed is intended as a gift to this i gave a somewhat qualified assent though i found the argument far from convincing and as i had made a very long visitation especially for a first call, I now rose to depart. "'I hope I may be allowed to come and see you again,' I ventured to say, as Miss Vine raised a sort of semaphore arm to my extended hand. "'I see no reason why you should not,' she replied judicially. "'You seem to be a well-disposed young man, though indiscreet. "'Good afternoon.' I bowed deferentially and then, to my gratification, was escorted as far as the garden gate by Sylvia, who evidently wished to gather my impressions of her relative, for, as she let me out, she asked with a mischievous smile, "'What do you think of my aunt, Dr. Jardine?' "'She is rather a terrifying old lady,' I replied. Sylvia giggled delightedly. "'She does look an awful old griffin, doesn't she? But it's all nonsense, you know.' she's really a dear old thing and as soft as butter. Well, I said, she conceals the fact most perfectly. She does. She's a most complete impostor. I'll tell you a secret, Dr. Jardine, Sylvia added in a mysterious whisper as we shook hands over the gate. She trades on her nose. I've told her so. Her nose is her fortune and she plays it for all it's worth. Goodbye, or rather, au revoir, "'for you've promised to come and see us again.' With a bright little nod, she turned and ran up the garden path, still chuckling softly at her joke, and I wended homewards, very well pleased with the circumstances of my visit, despite the soul-shaking incidents with which it had opened. End of chapter 12